2 Kings chapter 6. Getting off the page a little bit this morning. Made this decision to preach just a couple of days ago, so you're going to have to really bear with me this morning. But um, Does anybody have a, a page number in the Blue Bibles? I think it's 225. Is that it? Two what? 295. That's right, 295. Someone shouted out earlier today. 2 Kings chapter 6. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Quite a story here. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God. Who's the man of God in this story? What a title. Just to be called the man of God. It's Elisha. That's how he's called. He's just called the man of God. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel. Beware of passing to that place because... The Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha was right. And he warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which of you is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord and king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel... Tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Well, go find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. And the servant, the man of God, got up and went out early the next morning. An army with horses and chariots surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do, the servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered, the prophet being Elijah, Elisha. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord. Now, O Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. And Elisha told them, this is not the road, this is not the city. Follow me, I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel. And after they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord... Now open the eyes of these men so they can see. And then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they were inside Samaria. And when the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those who have captured with your own sword or bow? Instead, set food and water before them so they may eat and drink and then go back to their master So the king prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they shuv, they shuvah, they repented, they returned to their Lord. And so the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. This is God's word. You can be seated. 
I don't know if you just spaced out completely, um, but that is quite a story. It's, it's, it's a strange story, but it's very significant, I think, for us. Let me give you, start, first of all, just some background here. Aram is Syria. Funny how things don't change after hundreds, even thousands of, of years. Uh, Syria is waging war against Israel. Now, what I want you to know about both Syria and Israel at this time is uh, Syria isn't a big superpower. This isn't us, Syria. This isn't Babylon. Uh, These are two local, small countries that are just fighting. And and, and so the fighting, don't, don't think huge huge armies, but rather think guerrilla warfare. I mean, think a lot like we see today. This, this is a lot like ISIS. You have bands of soldiers that, that, that will come in, that will raid, plunder with, with great violence and brutality. They're killing fathers. They're killing mothers. They're raping people. They're enslaving children. And that's what's going on. And so Elisha steps in, into this thing Actually, God steps into this thing through Elisha because God tells Elisha every move that the Syrians are going to make before they make it. It'd be like if you're a defensive coordinator and uh, you're, you're, you know, in football and uh, you're, you, you know every play that the offense is going to run. It's, it, it's like you're, you're in the huddle and they run right and you know they're running right before they run right. And I mean, that's exactly what's going on here. In fact, I love how his, uh, the king gets very frustrated. Look at verse 11. It's like, what's going on here? Who's the Benedict Arnold? And then one of his uh, advisors in verse 12 said, well, it's this man, Elisha. He's so dialed in, he knows, he knows the very words that you're speaking in your bedroom. So the king is, well, like, find where this guy is, and they find where he is. He's in Dothan, so they send this significant army To get him. Now Elisha, the prophet of God, uh, was once a servant to Elijah. And now he has his own servant. And verse 15 says, his servant wakes up the next day. And all of a sudden it's like, are you, what's going on here? Because he sees the Syrian army and all its chariots right outside the house of Elisha. Elisha, what shall we do? And Elisha's calm. In fact, he simply says, he says, don't be afraid. And he says this really cool thing. He says, there are a lot more on our side than on, the, on their side. I'm sure the guy's like thinking, what are you smoking, dude? Like, I don't know if he thought that, but... But what you have are, are, are two totally different responses, and yet they're looking at the exact same situation. One is afraid, and the other is completely at peace. What's going on here? Well, the responses are based on what they see. Elisha's servant can't see what Elisha sees. And I love Elisha's response to this because Elisha could have shamed this guy and said, come on, man, you're, you're in the school of the prophets right now. Like, 
Like, why can't you see this? Why are you afraid, man? Instead, I love it. He's, uh, Elisha is just really tender with this guy. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't judge him. Um, and then in verse 17, it says Elisha just prays for him. He prays for him because Elisha realizes that his servant is, is spiritually blind. And I think a, a great reason as to, as to why he's spiritual, spiritually blind is because he's in crisis. And I think even the best of us in moments of crisis, uh, we are just hit with spiritual blindness. That's what crisis does to us. Listen to Job. In Job 23, he says, Behold, I go forward, but God is not there. I go backward, but I cannot perceive him. When God acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns to the right, I cannot see him. But God knows the way I take. And when he's tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And you know anything about the book of Job? Job is just, he's in total crisis. His, his whole life is has been taken from him. Everything that, he's, that he loves and that he cherishes, it, it, it's just taken. His world falls apart. And here he cries out, God, I can't see. I can't see you. I can't perceive you. But I love this. He says, but I know that when after you've tried me that I shall come forth as gold. And I think there's already a takeaway here for us. I think this is how we need to treat people who are in crisis. We, we, we need to be tender with them. We need to be gentle with them. We need to pray for them. Because I love what happens here. When, when, when Elisha prays for his servant, in that moment, God opens his eyes. He's cured of his spiritual blindness. And what does he see? Look at verse 17. It says, and he looked And then he saw the hills full of the horses and the chariots of fire that were all around Elisha. Now he's still looking at the same Syrian army, but in a whole new context. He doesn't just see the chariots on the ground, but he sees the chariots on the ground in light of the chariots in the sky, the chariots of God. I think most people today only see the chariots on the ground. I think most people today are blind to the chariots of God. I mean, the prophets over and over again say what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 5.21, and he's saying it to the people of God. He says, they have eyes, but they do not see. And with spiritual blindness, there's both the cause and the effect. And, and, and maybe this is me oversimplifying things a little bit. But I think the cause of, of, of spiritual blindness is simple. I can sum it up in one word. I can sum up the cause with this word worldliness. And worldliness is not living in the world because we're called to live in the world. Worldliness is simply living as if the world is all there is to live for. And see, if I live as if the world is, is all there is, then the world is all I'm going to see. And if the world is all I see, at the end of the day, it's going to then cause 
fear, like we see in the servant. Worry, panic. And I wonder how many people in this room right now live in, in, in a chronic state of fear, of, of being afraid, or a chronic state of, of anxiety and worry. Well, if all you can see are the chariots on the ground, it's actually a pretty rational thing to be in a state of worry and fear. But I love what David says. It's quite a bold statement. You might even almost think it's arrogant. But he says things like this. Like, like he says in Psalm 3 verse 6. He says, I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. David says, I don't fear that. And I, I, I ask myself, how, how, how can David say this? Is he lying? Or is he just trying to sound super spiritual? I'll tell you how David can say this. Because David is, is, is a man who can see more than just the chariots on the ground. David sees what Elisha sees. David sees the chariots of God. Listen to Psalm 68 verse 17. He says, the chariots of God are ten thousands upon ten thousands upon ten thousands. Which is why David can also say things like, like what he says in Psalm 27. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. He says, though a whole army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Even though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. How's David confident in, in these kind of circumstances? He doesn't just see the chariots on the ground that are besieging him and, and, and surrounding him, but he sees the chariots of God and he sees everything around him in light of that, which causes him to say, I will not. Probably a good time for me to ask this question. Are you spiritually blind? Are you so entrenched in this world? Are you so fixated on the things of this world? Are you so consumed with, with, with the world's stuff that you cannot see today the chariots of God? Can you see them? Because here's the deal. If, 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 if you... If you genuinely met God and you've come to know him personally, you're, you're, you're walking with him, you're going to see a lot more than just the chariots on the ground. The gospel is the good news of God's reign, of God's rule, of God's king breaking in. And this is not just an idea. That we put in our brains. A proposition. It's a power that comes into a person's life. So that whatever we face. Whatever we're looking at. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
whether it's the fear of losing, the fear of failure, the fear of being overtaken. Like Elisha, we can say, those who are with us are greater than those who are surrounding us. 1 John 4 verse 4 has become a precious text to me. First of all, because I was first introduced to it when I was an eight or nine-year-old at Sunday school class. And my dad happened to be the guest Sunday school teacher that day. And I'm like, wow, my dad's teaching today. And my dad got up, I'm just a little eight or nine-year-old at the time, and did something that I didn't hear in my upbringing, because in my upbringing, no one ever admitted any problem or any struggle or anything like that. And my dad basically just said, you know, I'm really struggling right now. But I want to teach you something that's precious to me. You, dear children, are from God. And you have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And in so many situations in life, facing situations and things that just looked insurmountable and being surrounded by circumstances. I've come back to this text over and over and over again. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And see, the, the, the chariots of God are not just something that we see, but the chariots of God are, are, are actually reality. It, it's the reality of God. It's the kingdom of God. It's the reign of God. It's the rule of God that, that's being unleashed. And it, it's, it's, it's fighting for us because the Lord, the, the, the king of the universe, the Bible says he is a warrior God and he makes war on our behalf. As David says in another place, he says, the battle is the Lord's. And I love that whole uh, story in, in Exodus after God takes his people out of, out of slavery in Egypt and, and, and there they come to that Red Sea and, and they come there and they turn around and, and here are all the chariots of Egypt coming after them to kill them and they start crying out to Moses, Moses, what'd you do? Bring us out in the wilderness to die? And Moses just answered the people. He says, do not be afraid. He says, stand firm because today you're going to see the... Del- the deliverance of the Lord that he's going to bring. He says, the Lord will fight for you. All you need to do is be still. Do you need this today? By the way, do you know where this story takes place? Go find it right now. Get, get, get your eyes in your Bible. Where does it take place? No, uh, 2 Kings uh, 6. Dothan. There's only one other place in, in the Bible where, where this place, Dothan, is mentioned. Does anybody know that? It's in the Joseph story. When Joseph goes and looks for his brothers, uh, this is the place where his brothers... Uh, capture him and strip him and, and lower him into that pit and then sell him into slavery. 
Now, there's a rabbinic technique that when they see that there's a word or a, a place name that's only found a couple of times in Scripture, what they do is they, they put those Scriptures together, and they, and, they, and they start to figure out what it means. A good example of this is the unique word uh, in Hebrew, ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta is their, their, this unique form of you shall love. So in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, they see this word and also Leviticus 19, verse 18. And they put these two verses together. And when you put them together, you have, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then also Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And they do this also with place names. And so when you put this story together with the story of Joseph uh, being lowered into, um, into a pit and then being sold, sold into slavery... You have to ask this question, is God fighting for Joseph? Well, I don't know what Joseph is thinking at that time, but he certainly must be thinking, God, where are you right now? And then not only is he sold into slavery, but then seven years later, he's thrown into another prison, and he's probably thinking then, God, where are you? And I know some of us are here that right now. We're like, God's not fighting for me. There's no way he's fighting for me. If you knew the pit that I was in, or you knew the prison that I was in right now, there's no way God is fighting for me. But we know the rest of the story of Joseph. God put him in a pit. God put him in a prison because he was fighting for him. He wasn't just fighting for Joseph, but he's fighting for Joseph's whole family. He's fighting for you. And he's using all these circumstances, whether it's pits and prisons or, or whatever, he's fighting for you. But see, if you're here today and all you can see are just the chariots on the ground, but you're unable to see the chariots of God, you're spiritually blind. And I know that feels offensive to some of you. Some of you are like, don't call me spiritually blind. I'm a good person. I'm a Christian. I go to a Christian college. I'm, I'm here in church today. I think one of the things this text teaches us, Elisha's servant, he's in the school of the prophets. I mean, that's the equivalent of being at Cornerstone. Or Calvin. And I think if, if today you find that your life is ravaged by worry and anxiety and fear and, and, and you're so consumed with this world, you'd probably do yourself a good service right now and admit, yep, I'm spiritually blind. Because if all of us right now could even have our eyes open to see the chariots of God, the chariots that are in the sky, even surrounding us right now. The kingdom of heaven is the most exciting thing there is. But if all you can see is, are, are the kingdoms of this world and you can't see the kingdom of heaven and as... as as John, uh, or as Revelation 11 verse 15 says, the kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And I think the first step that we need to do if we're going to have our eyes open is we need to admit that we're blind. Because the worst kind of blindness is, is being too blind to even know that we're blind. 
If you read the Gospels, you'll see this is why Jesus is talking about spiritual blindness quite a bit. In fact, he's repeatedly warning the people who are most susceptible to spiritual blindness. And it's not just those people who are in crisis, but it's really those people who label themselves as as being really good and, and religious and spiritual. Remember the whole encounter with with Nicodemus. Because this is the kind of person that Jesus is constantly addressing. And and, and it's people who just kind of smugly take this in and say, Yep, we know. We're right. We're spiritual. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and starts off the whole conversation with, Yep, we know. We know who you are. And Jesus basically says, what? You know what? You don't even know the basics about God's ruach and his spirit and what it means to be born again. And then you get to uh, uh, this incredible story in John chapter 9 where, again, you got a man who's been born blind and and all these uh, religious leaders, Pharisees, and you you read that story, and I'm going to ask you to read it because I want you to ask this question, who's really blind? And who really sees? And Jesus ends this whole thing, and I'll give it to you just to whet your appetite. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will know that they're blind. Tell you what, the Christian thing is not just this, this smug, we know a few things about God, and we, we know a few things about the Bible, and we know a few things about Jesus, and we're right, and, 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 and we're the spiritual ones. <sighs> being a Christian is being wowed. It's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind. Now I see. It's amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Are you blind? Jesus came to this world for this very purpose, to open the eyes of the blind. It's in his mission statement in Luke 4. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the prisoner and recovery of sight to the blind. Paul's prayer to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 1, he says, this is my prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be open, enlightened, so that you may know fully how deep and wide is the love of God. Have the eyes of your heart been opened to see? Richard, you have a good day, man. You guys all know Richard, right? This guy, every Sunday, this is a good time for a commercial, he sits right in the front row, right here, right here, and cheers me on. Richard, have a good one, man. 
Verse 18. <laughs> now we, 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 we're still stepping into more, more blindness. Look at verse 18. The enemy came down toward him, towards Elisha, the man of God. And Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So God struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. <laughs> it's a crazy story. I think about these Syrian soldiers. I mean, they have no idea who they're fighting. I mean, they think they're just going to take this prophet, and they don't realize that they're fighting against God. And then they come, and Elisha then prays for them. And his prayer is, God, would you strike these soldiers with blindness? It's basically a prayer. God, would you let them know that how blind they are? And then once blind, Elisha then is going to lead them into the belly of their enemy, Samaria. The capital of Israel. Hey guys, follow me. Come on. You're all blind. It's like they're all blindfolded. You gotta follow me. I'll take you to where you're going. I'll take you to the man. You're, you're, you're not going to the right man. I'll, I'll show you where you need to go. And then they're going to get there. And then, God, then Elisha prays, may you open their eyes. God, now to what they didn't see before. But let them see. And what is it that they didn't see before? They didn't see the Lord. They didn't see his heart. They didn't see his love. They didn't see his grace. And I love this whole picture here because it teaches us that for us to be able to see, we first need to be captured, we need to be conquered, and then we need to be defeated by the king. Because that's exactly what's going on in this story. These Syrian soldiers thought that they're the ones who are going to do the capturing and the conquering only to find out that the tables are turned and now they're going to be the ones captured. They're going to be the ones who are conquered. And I want us to see that this mighty army is reduced to utter helplessness and dependency by one man, the man of God, Elisha. And that through all of this, they are coming to know the one true God, the Lord and King of the universe, who is a God who cannot be defeated. And yet that's what we try to do so often in all of our wrestling. Most of our wrestling at the end of the day is really with God. In fact, we try to capture and conquer God. And the way that we do this is we put him in our nice, neat religious boxes. We put him in our nice, neat theological systems so that we can have control over him, so we can leverage him, so we can use God for our ends. And how messed up is that? But see, if we're ever, ever going to see, and a lot of you aren't going to like this, but it has to happen. God needs to capture us, conquer us, and utterly defeat us. It's like Jacob. Jacob spent his whole, whole life being this punk. He's, he's a total punk. And, and, and he's always wrestling. I mean, he's wrestling in his mother's womb with his twin brother. He's wrestling when he's born with his twin brother. And then he wrestles with Esau, his brother, throughout life for the blessing or the birthright. Then he wrestles with his dad to uh, get the blessing. Then he wrestles with his uncle Laban to get wealth and, and his daughters, who he loved. And, and he, this, is, this is Jacob. But then he has that night at Penuel. And here he is, he's encountered with this, this 
man of God, this this God-man, and they're, they're, they're wrestling through the whole night, and the whole time Jacob's saying to him, bless me, bless me, bless me. And what Jacob needs in that moment more than anything else is to be utterly defeated, and it's that man, that God-man, that Christ who he's wrestling with, he smashes him, he cripples him, he breaks him, he defeats him. Through all this, Jacob wins. He wins everything his heart ever wanted. He wins through losing. He wins by being utterly defeated. He sees. That's why he calls the place Penuel. My eyes have seen God. And see, for us to see, we need at some point in our life, and then it happens throughout our life, where uh, we need to be captured. We need to be conquered. We need to be defeated by God. Uh, we also, for us to see, as the text says in verse 19, I love this. Elisha says, follow me and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. Well, what man? <laughs> it's going to be the man who's going to open their eyes, capture their hearts, and save them by grace. So Elisha does this. He leads them into Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. And I want us to picture this because these are violent thugs, enemies, warriors, people who have pillaged and raped Israel, who've killed mothers and fathers. And they're brought in right into the heart of the enemy and their eyes are open. I just want to, I wish I could see the reaction on their faces. Because in this moment, they realize how helpless and vulnerable they really are. And the king, here they are, they brought right before the king. And what does the king say? I love this. He addresses Elisha. Elisha leads him in. He's, the king himself is probably utterly stunned. And, and the king actually calls Elisha my father because that's the way it worked in those days. A king was always under the prophet. He says, my father, shall we kill them? Not just once, but twice. Shall we kill them? Shall we kill them? I want to kill them so bad. And here we see the gospel in the next verses. Look at verses 22 through 23. Elisha, the man of God, stands in the gap, interceding for them. And he says, do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those who who you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a banquet for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. Yes, that's the whole gospel. The gospel is that whether you know this or not, in our natural heart, we are predisposed to be enemies towards God. And this is what God does when he captures his enemies. Instead of serving them the sword, he serves them a feast. The fattened calf is killed and there's a party. Because the gospel is God does not capture or conquer us by force or by beating or whipping us into shape. He conquers us by his love. He smites us with his mercy. He melts our hearts with his grace. And he does this through the one man 
who mediates and intercedes on our behalf. Because without the man of God, these men are killed. But this is how God treats his enemies. And so here's my question. It's an important one. Have you been led to the man? Not just religion. Not to just a system of morality or a system of rules or a system of thought. But have you been led to this person, this man, this God-man? Because the man of God in this story is Elisha, but Elisha only foreshadows the ultimate man of God, the man who, who the whole Bible points to, to Christ. Jesus is the man every heart is longing for and looking for, whether we know it or not. And at one point in time, we're all enemies. And we're too blind to even know that we're blind and, and we're deserving of judgment. We're deserving of death. But instead of a sword, God gives us grace. He gives us a feast. As we've just recently learned, our father is a father who runs to us, embraces us, kisses us, kills a fatted calf for us, puts the robe on us, the ring on us, and says, my son, my daughter, And how did he do this? Because the ultimate Elisha Christ took absolutely everything that we deserve. Everything that we deserve was, was, was placed on Christ. And everything that Christ deserved was placed on us. Which is like, whoa, wow. Amazing grace. I mean, Jesus on the cross, just like Elisha, is surrounded by a swarm of people who wanted to kill him with a simple word. He could have commanded thousands upon thousands upon thousands of the chariots of God to just be hurled and unleashed on his enemies. But he took it. All of it. In our place. Darkness fell on him. He was, he was made blind so that we can see. He was undone so that we could be made new. Everything that we deserve as enemies of God was placed on him. And everything that Jesus deserved is placed on us. That's why Paul says in Romans 5 verse 10, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. When I see this, when I see Jesus getting what I deserve and, 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 and me getting what Jesus deserved, when I see God for me in Christ, it changes everything. It changes how I see myself. It changes how I see you. It changes how I see my circumstances. It changes how I see the world because God in Christ is the chariots of God. And he's fighting for us. He's for us. He's doing everything, not just for our past, but for our present and our future. 
Which is why Paul can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us everything we need? And then he says, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love all the, 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 the little things in this story that also point us to the rest of the story. The fact that these enemies that are fighting against God, that they come from Damascus. <laughs> they come from Damascus. Think about this. Persecuting the people of God and the man of God only to return to Damascus having been changed by the grace of God through the man of God by being struck blind. Who does that sound like? Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And there's Paul, he's so hellbent on striking down Christians. He's, he's so blinded by, I'm a Pharisee as to the law, I'm perfect. When that one encounter with Christ, Paul is made blind so he can see. Have you had a Damascus Road experience where you've been struck blind to everything that you've been living for, everything that you've been putting your hope in, whether it be things in the world or people or places or even your own self? And have your eyes, not just of your mind, but have the eyes of your heart been opened to finally see? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. We have to, we have to turn from pride. We have to admit pride, the pride that makes us think we see when we're blind, and we have to be humble enough to say, I can't see. And the God of the universe, through Jesus, he really can open our eyes. And in opening our eyes, he can cause us to see more than just the chariots on the ground, but the chariots in the sky. That the God of the universe is for us and fighting for us in Christ and through Christ. We can be set free totally from anxiety, worry, fear, ourselves. And if that's you today, I'm going to do what Elisha did. For both the good man, the man of God in the story, his servant, and those bad people, the enemies of God, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for me that our eyes would be open. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I admit I'm blind. And I want to see you. I want to see all that you are. I want to see all that you have done, not just with my mind, but would you open the eyes of my heart to see And Lord Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I invite you right now to capture my heart, to conquer my will, and to come into my life as my king. 
Set me free from worry. Set me free from worldliness. Cleanse me from living for me. Raise my life from the dead to new life in you. Where the eyes of my heart can truly see. Causing my heart to truly sing. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see. Open our eyes, Lord. Amen.